Psalm 142. Let's see, Psalm 142. A contemplation of David, a prayer when he was in the cave. I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord, I make my supplication. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path. In the way in which I walk, they have secretly set a snare for me. Look on my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. We have a sermon today of Exodus 27, 9 through 21. Uh, you shall also make the court of the tabernacle. For the south side there shall be hangings for the court made of fine woven linen, 100 cubits long for one side, and its 20 pillars, and their 20 sockets shall be bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be silver. Likewise, along the length of the north side there shall be hangings 100 cubits long with its 20 pillars and their 20 sockets of bronze and the hooks of the pillars and their bands of silver. And along the width of the cord on the west side there shall be hangings of 50 cubits with their 10 pillars and their 10 sockets. The width of the cord on the east side shall be 50 cubits. The hangings on one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. On the other side shall be hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. For the gate of the court there shall be a screen 20 cubits long woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen made by a weaver. It shall have four pillars and four sockets. All the pillars around the court shall have bands of silver and their hooks shall be of silver and their sockets of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, the width 50 throughout, and the height five cubits made of fine woven linen and its sockets of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for all its service, all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. You shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually. In the tabernacle of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. Anybody see Christ in every verse? Because if you didn't, you will. The altar of burnt offering was the last piece of furniture that we looked at. It is the place where the people would come to make their offerings to the Lord. But this wasn't just arbitrarily set outside the tabernacle. Instead, it was to be located within the courtyard, which would surround the tabernacle. The courtyard itself is not very ostentatious. It is simple in its form, and that is how it would appear to anyone, both inside and outside. And yet every detail has purpose and reflects order and harmony. But isn't that just how Jesus appeared to the world? He didn't come and live an ostentatious life. Viewing him from a distance, all you would see is a regular person. But as you got to know him more intimately, the more perfect he would seem. One could never say this part or that part of his life is out of order. Instead, you would consider everything he did and you would marvel at the perfection that you witnessed. The same is true with the courts of the tabernacle. Walking around the courtyard, carefully evaluating each thing would reveal wisdom. There was nothing arbitrary and nothing superfluous. Every detail served a particular purpose. And this is true with the words of the Bible. 
The more we read them, the more perfect we realize that they are. With each new commentary we read or each new sermon that we listen to, we find new insights, even into old familiar passages. We see that everything that God does simply proclaims his glory. So our text verse today comes from Psalm 96. Give to the Lord, O family of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The people of Israel were admonished to bring an offering and come into the courts of the Lord. There they would worship him in the beauty of holiness. If the courts were haphazardly constructed, they would detract from such a notion. But they were precisely made and they were beautiful in their simplicity. And so standing in those courts on the unpaved ground, they could look towards the tabernacle and worship the Lord with their hearts directed towards him. Today, we'll see what those courts looked like and we will see a small portion of the countless pictures that each detail makes. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is the courtyard of the tabernacle. It's verses 9 through 19. Verse 9, you shall also make the court of the tabernacle. Moses is now instructed to make a chatzar, or a court for the tabernacle. This word is not new to scripture, but it is the first time it is used for the sanctuary. It simply means a yard, as if enclosed by a fence. In a broader sense, it can mean a small town enclosed by walls and so on. The detail for the construction of the brazen altar was given first, and only now is the construction of the court described, of which the brazen altar will be the prominent piece of furniture. This is the same general idea as the giving of the description of the ark and the mercy seat, the table of showbread, and the menorah before the description for the construction of the tabernacle. Each step is logical and it is orderly. What we should be reminded of now are the various terms which are used to describe what is being erected. The first is mikdash. This is the sanctuary itself. After that is the tabernacle or the mishkan. This is the inner part of the sanctuary where the holy place and the most holy place are located. These were both noted in Exodus 25 with these words. And let them make me a sanctuary. That would be the mikdash that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you. That is the pattern of the tabernacle or the mishkan and the pattern of all of its furnishings, just so you shall make it. On top of the mishkan or tabernacle would be a covering called the ohel or tent. Surrounding all of this would be the chatzar or the court. It is this which is being described and which is a part of the overall mikdash or sanctuary. It would be good to refer to an image of the entire structure so that one can see the various parts in so doing, the description then makes much more sense. This court will be described. It will form a parallelogram, meaning a double square where the length is twice that of its width. In modern measurements, it would be about 150 feet long and about 75 feet wide. In other words, it's going to be half as long as a football field and half as wide as a football field. It is into this courtyard that the people of Israel will be admitted for the purpose of bringing their sacrifices and their offerings and for bringing in their praise and worship of the Lord. The entire court area would be open to the skies, excepting the tabernacle itself. This had its own coverings and then was covered by a tent. The placing of the brazen altar in this area is for obvious reasons. When the sacrifices were burnt, they could rise into the open atmosphere. 
However, this is not the only reason for its placement where it is, as will be seen later with the placement of the other courtyard furniture which is going to be described. Verse 9 continues, For the south side, Lifat Negev Temana, literally, the south side upon the right. The tabernacle faced east, and so it was regarded as if looking from the west to the east from the Lord's vantage point, not from man's, which would be entering with the south on the left, as is the same with the description of the tabernacle. The instructions for the south side are mentioned first, then the north side, then the west, and then the east is described last. Verse 9 continues, There shall be hangings for the court made of fine woven linen. An unusual word, different from the curtains previously described, is introduced into the Bible here. It is kelah, which means a hanging, or a sling for slinging stones. It comes from the verb kalah, which means to carve or to sling stones. The Greek translation of the Old Testament uses the word istia, or sails, like the sails on a ship, to describe these hangings. Charles Ellicott says that it seems to designate a coarse sail cloth woven with interstices, through which what went on the inside of the court might be seen. Like the tabernacle, the construction of these hangings was to be of fine woven linen. As this entire sanctuary pictures both the work of Christ and the process of redemption, the picture that this is making should be obvious. The fine linen, just like before, represents righteousness. That is stated explicitly in Revelation 19, verse 8, with these words, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. The fact that it could be seen through and yet keep people from entering in is to show that even Christ's work is separate from the world. It is visible to all who are outside in the world. The process of redemption leading to righteousness and to our inclusion in the body of Christ is not to be hidden away, but to be transparent to all who are looking. Verse 9 continues, 100 cubits long for one side. The number 100 can be obtained in several ways. The most obvious is 10 times 10. 10 is the perfection of divine order, and so the length is simply that thought squared. The first 10 is given as a type of the whole. The length and feet, as I said a while ago, would be about 50 yards long. The hangings were to go all the way down the length of the court on the south side. Verse 10, and its 20 pillars and their 20 sockets shall be bronze. As has been seen already quite a few times, nechoshet, or bronze, pictures judgment. The hangings of the court were to be supported by bronze. This indicates that what is outside requires judgment in order to become righteous, and what is inside is righteous because of the judgment which has allowed one to come inside. This is why the brazen altar was first described. It is also why the brazen altar is located where it is in the courtyard. Just so you know, some translations do not specify that the pillars are bronze, only the bases. But the Hebrew in the next clause that we're going to look at follows the same pattern for the silver hooks and the bands, both of which are silver. Therefore, the pillars are probably all bronze. However, verse 17, which is a summary verse, does not specifically say this. Verse 10 continues, The hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be silver. The hooks, or vavim, are the same things which were first described in verse 26:32. It is believed that they are hooks by which the hangings could be attached onto the pillars. It's just a guess, and no one is entirely sure what they are. Vav is also the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it has the meanings of add, secure, and hook. Whether in the ancient writing or modern, 
it has the appearance of a peg or a hook of some sort. The Vav as a letter is used in the Hebrew language to serve as a connector to words and members within a sentence and even the sentences of a discourse. Thus it draws them together. Therefore, hook or peg is the obvious and preferred meaning of this word. The word translated here as bands is chashuk. This is the first mention of them, and again, it is not clear exactly what they are. Some see them as connecting rods between the poles themselves. Others, some second implement to connect the hangings to the poles. The word chashuk comes from the verb chashak, which indicates to have delight, or to have a desire, or a long for, or even to set in love. That, in turn, comes from a primitive root, which figuratively means to join in love or delight. For this reason, I would suggest, and this is just Charlie Garrett here, that they were either silver connecting rods, as some scholars suggest, or what I think is more probable, silver eyelets, which would be woven into the hangings and upon which the hangings would then be connected onto the hooks themselves. As has been seen, silver pictures redemption. This then makes an obvious picture for us. The bronze is for the judgment upon which the redemption is secured and from which righteousness hangs. It is a logical progression of the process of right standing with God. As Arthur Pink says about this verse, there's an inseparable connection between Christ our righteousness, think of the hangings, and Christ our redeemer, think of the silver. These two must never be separated, and so they're being connected together. Righteousness could never have been imputed to us unless the Lord Jesus had ransomed us by his blood. So you have judgment, and then you have redemption, and then you have righteousness all hanging together. Verse 11, likewise, along the length of the north side, there shall be hanging 100 cubits long with its 20 pillars and their 20 sockets of bronze and the hooks of the pillars and their bands of silver. The instructions for the north side match those of the south side. Therefore, there are now a total of 40 pillars and 40 sockets. Verse 12, and along the width of the court on the west side shall be hangings of 50 cubits with their 10 pillars and their 10 sockets. The west side was to be one half the length of the south and north sides. Therefore, there are only 10 pillars and 10 sockets. What is noticeable here is that there is no mention of either the materials to be used for them, and there is no mention of silver hooks or bands. But we will see in verse 17 that they are of the same materials. I just think it's interesting that the Lord doesn't specify it here. And what should be highlighted is that almost all depictions that you see, either online on an image search or this thing over here of the courtyard, show one pole in each corner of the hangings. Because of this, there are only 48 poles displayed. Or some show a total of 21 poles on the north and on the south in order to have 20 hangings. Thus, there would be 51 poles for these three sides. Both are incorrect. It says that there are 10 pillars and sockets on the west. And so there are a total of 50 sockets so far. The distance is reckoned not by the hangings, but by the pillars and the sockets. Verse 13, the width of the court on the east side shall be 50 cubits. Lifat kedema mitzracha, the side front eastward. The front side of the tabernacle faces east towards the rising sun. Unlike Egypt, which would get up and they would worship the sun as it arose, the people of Israel would worship towards the Lord with the sun to their back. This was to prevent the idolatry of sun worship, something actually seen which resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem in Ezekiel chapter 8 with these words. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again, you will see greater abominations than these. 
So he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and there at the door of the tabernacle of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east, and they were worshiping the sun towards the east. And he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it a trivial thing to the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence. They, then they have returned to provoke me to anger. Indeed, they will put the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will also act in fury. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. Like the West, the width of the courtyard is 50 cubits in total. The number 50, according to E.W. Bollinger, is the number of jubilee or deliverance. It is the issue of seven times seven and points to deliverance and rest following on as the result of the perfect consummation of time. The depth of the courtyard looks to the perfection of divine order, while the width of it points to deliverance and rest as of the perfect consummation of time. Together, the courtyard would be 5,000 square cubits in size. Verse 14, the hangings on one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. What we have being described here is the means of access into the courtyard. From one corner, there would be hangings like those on the other three sides. These would be 15 cubits in length and would stand on three pillars in three sockets. The word translated here as side is katef. It is a new word which is introduced into the Bible and it means a shoulder or a shoulder blade and hence a side. Again, the materials for the sockets are surprisingly not named here, nor are any hooks or bands. However, they will be specified in verse 17. Almost every depiction shows three hangings being represented. This is incorrect. There would be two hangings on three pillars and sockets. We are now to 53 pillars and sockets. Verse 15, and on the other side shall be hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. Like the first side of verse 14, the opposite side will be the same. There would be three pillars and their sockets which were connected by two hangings of linen. The 15 cubits of each side means that the opening for the gate in the middle will be 20 cubits. In all, we now have 56 pillars and sockets. Before looking at the next verse, we can deduce that the total length of the hangings is 280 cubits. This is a multiple of 7 times 4 times 10. This then would be a picture of spiritual perfection, 7, in creation 4, which is according to divine order 10. This is something that the tabernacle actually claims to be. It is the place where the Lord dwelt on earth. Interestingly, it is the same length as the curtains which overspread the tabernacle. Those presented Christ in a way that the world could not see, being covered over. However, the white curtains are evident to any and to all who are in view. Thus, they picture Christ whose purity of nature was apparent to any who saw him. This is evident throughout the Gospels, but a few examples are, first, Jesus asked, which of you convicts me of sin? He asked that in John 8, 46, and the answer, none could. Pilate likewise confessed that he found no fault in that man. The exterior of the sanctuary is that which is realized in the eyes of those who beheld Christ. As E. Dennett says, he says, not a single speck could be detected upon the fine twined linen of his holy life, his life of practical righteousness which flowed from the purity of his being. Verse 16, for the gate of the court there shall be a screen 20 cubits long. 
The opening to the courtyard is 20 cubits in length. However, there is a screen which is at the opening which is 20 cubits long. Most depictions have this screen evenly lined up with the other hangings and then some type of opening in it by which people could enter. The King James Version confuses the wording here and for the screen in Exodus 26, which is for the entry into the holy place by calling them both hangings. However, it then calls this a curtain in Numbers 3 verse 26. It is not precise, nor is it consistent in the translation, thus making it very difficult to know what's going on. The King James Version is not a good translation in this particular respect. Verse 16, woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. The same colors previously used for the colors of the tabernacle are prescribed for this screen. It is to be of blue, representing the law, of purple, representing royalty and the prerogatives of royalty, meaning upholding the law, executing war, and judging, and also of scarlet, which is the result of war and shedding blood. With these, it is to be woven with the fine linen. All of this pictures the work of Jesus Christ, as we've seen in those previous sermons, in which I will not detail in great measure today. Verse 16 continues, made by a weaver, ma'ase rokem, worked embroiderer. The word rakam is a verb which means to variegate color, and so it is translated variously as an embroiderer, or a weaver, or with needlework. It is used only one other time other than in the building of this tabernacle where it says this in the 139th Psalm. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought, that word right there, in the lowest parts of the earth. Therefore, the screen is something the weaver would skillfully and meticulously fashion according to Moses' instructions. As there is only one entry point into the courtyard, and because the materials and the colors picture Christ, it is an indication that there is but one way to approach the Lord, and that is through the work of Jesus Christ. What is seen here in the Sha'ar, or gate, is reflective of what was proclaimed by Jacob after his night of sleeping on the stone outside of Lutz. Using the same word, after his vision in the night, we read this. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Then he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate, the Sha'ar of heaven. As John later reveals, the ladder which ascended to heaven in his dream was a picture of Christ. The gate or door, it is the same word in Greek, is also a picture of him as he proclaimed. Here's what he said in John 10:9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The courts of heaven are available, but only through one access point. The door is Christ. But the fact that Christ is there is a point of grace all by itself. This screen is 20 cubits in length. According to E.W. Bollinger, the number 20 signifies expectancy. And this is exactly what one would have as they approached this beautiful weaving, expectancy. Every detail in one way or another points to Jesus Christ and everything about this marvelous edifice fits perfectly into what all other numbers of the Bible clearly show. The wisdom behind each item in size, color, or material is set to the tune of perfection. Verse 16 continues, it shall have four pillars and four sockets. The woven screen is to be 20 cubits long and it will stand on four sockets. Nothing is stated about how one gains access into the courtyard. 
Sometimes depictions show the screens fully displayed, but people walking around on the inside as if they had to continuously lift or pull back the screen in order to get in. Other depictions show the screen furled up or back at the center so people can walk in, so you don't see the whole screen. This may be the case, but it also may be that the screen is one continuous piece on four pillars, which is then offset from the rest of the hangings. The reason why I say this, and I don't know anybody that's come to this conclusion, so I don't want you to make a brain squiggle on it. I'm just telling you what I think. I get my thought from Ezekiel chapter 46, verse 9. Here's what it says. But when the people of the land come before the Lord on the appointed feast days, whoever, whoever enters by way of the north gate to worship shall go out by the way of the south gate. And whoever enters by the way of the south gate shall go out by the way of the north gate. He shall not return by the way of the gate through which he came, but shall go out through the opposite gate. It would seem logical that the people would enter the gate at one side and exit at the other by walking between the openings at either side. There is still only one entry, but the screen would remain freestanding and the weavings would not be hidden from view in this case. Once again, this is only me speculating but what it would alleviate the unnecessary handling of the screens and maintain their overall beauty. No matter what, though, the screen is to be supported on four pillars in four sockets. This now makes 60 pillars and sockets for the courtyard. It is obvious that a pillar is a picture of support and of strength. There are 60 pillars standing in 60 sockets to support and sustain the walls of the court of this tabernacle. A particular verse comes to mind concerning this. Who is like this coming out of the wilderness, like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the merchant's fragrant powders? Behold, it is Solomon's couch, with sixty valiant men around it, of the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man has his sword on his thigh because of fear in the night." Surprisingly, the couch of Solomon, meaning the king of Israel, is said to be coming out of the wilderness, just as the tabernacle came forth out of the wilderness. A palanquin, which is for carrying a king, is actually a curtained litter. The symbolism is the same as the tabernacle, which contained an edifice which was carried throughout the wilderness. So you see the symbolism is the same. There is the king of Israel, think of Jesus, being carried about on the shoulders of the Levites. And when stationed, he is surrounded by 60 mighty pillars. Such is the nature of the tabernacle in which he dwelt. However, there is more. It is also assumed that the 60 pillars are a picture of the 60 Hebrew letters of the Berkat Kohanim, or the high priestly blessing, found in Numbers chapter 6. It would be from within these courts that this blessing would come. Now, this blessing is exactly 60 letters in the Hebrew. In Hebrew, it says, Yeberechecha Adonai ve'yishmerecha, Ya'er Adonai panav eliecha v'ikunecha, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Further, the number 60 points to grace and government, 5 times 12. Thus it is again a picture of the grace of Christ who reigns in righteousness. He is the wall which surrounds us. Verse 17, all the pillars around the court shall have bands of silver, their hooks shall be of silver, and their sockets of bronze. For whatever reason, the materials for the sockets, bands, and hooks were left off of the details for the west and the east. Now this clarifies what they are all made of. However, the material for the pillars is not mentioned. 
It is for this reason that one can only speculate that they are made of brass. The wording of verses 10 and 11 in Hebrew leave the possibility open that they are not made of brass at all. They could be made of wood. We don't know. Verse 18, the length of the court shall be 100 cubits, the width 50 throughout, and the height 5 cubits made of fine woven linen and its sockets of bronze. The total area of the court is 5,000 square cubits. With the additional 5 cubits in height, due to the height which is now mentioned, it would be a total of 25,000 cubed cubits. Interestingly, the total district which surrounds the place of the Lord, as is recorded in Ezekiel chapter 48, says this, the entire district shall be 25,000 cubits by 25,000 cubits, four square. You shall set apart the holy district with the property of the city. Therefore, the number 25,000 is not without significance to the Lord. The number 5,000 squared cubits, as we saw earlier, pointed to the perfection of divine order and deliverance and rest as of the perfect consummation of time. If we add in grace, which is the five height represented by that five cubits, we see that the total area of the courtyard speaks of divine order, deliverance and rest through a process of grace. It is a picture of man falling from the Garden of Eden and being restored back to God's paradise once again in these numbers. With the exception of the tent curtains of the tabernacle from Exodus 26 verse 2, all of the measurements of both the tabernacle and the court area, all of them are either five cubits or a multiple of five. Thus, the entire pattern of this entire sanctuary speaks of grace in one form or another. As the height of the outer court hangings is only five cubits and the tabernacle boards were 10 cubits high, the tent would be easily visible from the outside of the court hangings. Verse 19, all the utensils of the tabernacle for all of its service, all of its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. Everything made of metal, which is associated with the workings of the tabernacle was to be a bronze. These utensils wouldn't be the things for ceremonial use, but for the care and stability of the tabernacle itself. They would certainly include things like knives, hammers, shovels, picks, and axes that would be needed for repairing, setting up, and taking down the tabernacle. The peg, or yathed, is introduced into the Bible here. It signifies a nail, a shovel, a pin, or a stake. It comes from a word which means to pin through, and so it means especially a peg. Even these were to be of bronze. And the word is mentioned twice, signifying two different things. First, it says of the tabernacle when mentioning the pegs. Then it says, and all the pegs of the court. What this implies is that the pegs which were staked into the ground would be bronze, even for the ropes connected to the tabernacle itself, as well as all of the pillars of the courtyard. There's nothing wrong with this view. Even though all of the things associated with the tabernacle were either gold or silver, the pegs being bronze would not in any way diminish the picture of the holiness of the Lord. As in all cases, the bronze symbolizes judgment. As the pegs which touch the earth are bronze, so it is a picture of the feet of Christ in judgment. This is seen explicitly in Revelation 2 verse 18. These things says the Son of God who has his eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Before we go on to the second section, we should take the time to note that the entire court, including the tabernacle, was simply set on bare ground. It is thus an indication that no matter where one was within the compound, there is nothing, nothing on this earth which can satisfy us. Instead, we are to look to Christ. In Isaiah 53, verse 2, he is called a root out of dry ground. 
The tabernacle standing, as it were, out of dry ground, pictures Christ. Standing in the courts on that arid ground, one would realize that only when looking towards the Lord, there behind the veil and dwelling in the gold-lined room where he rested, is there anything of true value. The entryway to the compound was adorned with the colors of his kingship and his authority. But once inside, each step is given to tantalize the soul to go just a little step further. Paradise waits up ahead, there behind the veil. This is why the psalmist said these words, How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs even, yes, it even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. Selah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord. How marvelous are your courts which do surround and how beautiful is your gate. It pulls my heart toward the marvelous place there on the dry ground. I long to enter into the place where you dwell and to smell the burning of the sacrifice. Accept my offering, O Lord, and be pleased to tell that we are again in fellowship, so sweet and so nice. How lovely is your dwelling place, my God. I long to stand here with you for eternal days and to gaze upon the beauty of my Lord and with my soul forever to sing your praise. Our second thought today is the maintenance of the lamp, which is verses 20 and 21. Verse 20, And you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light. Suddenly, and with even surprising abruptness, the maintenance of the menorah comes back into focus. Just as chapter 25 closed out with the requirements for the construction of the menorah, the requirements for its maintenance will close out this chapter. The words are given as a command to the people. They are expected to bring pure oil of pressed olives for the light. The word pure is the adjective zak. The word pressed is not a good translation. Rather, it should say beaten. It is the adjective katit. Both are introduced into the Bible in this verse. Zak will be used just 11 times, and it indicates something clean, clear, or pure. This would be the finest oil possible. Rather than being pressed under heavy stones, it would probably be gently beaten in a pounding mortar, just enough to break the skin. And from there, the full olives would be placed in a strainer of some sort, like a wicker basket, in order to allow their juice to just drip through. The pure liquid would simply run through that and into a bowl. And from there, the purest oil would float to the top and it would be skimmed off. From this, the anticipated result would be oil with no impurities at all. Katit will be used just five times and it indicates something beaten. It is only used in connection with the olives that have been made into oil. The process of beating the olives is what the adjective implies. The oil which is expected would usually come from unripe fruit. It would come out clear and without color, and it would give a pure, bright light and have very little smoke. Verse 20 continues, to cause the lamp to burn continually. There is a debate as to whether the lamp was to burn continually, day and night, or if it was to burn every night continually. It appears from the next verse and from Exodus 30, verse 8, and Leviticus 24, verse 3, that the menorah only burned throughout the night. Later writers, such as Flavius Josephus, said that the three of those lamps burned during the day and all of them at night. But this is not to be found in Scripture. It may have been a later tradition which was added into the rituals. The word for burn here means to ascend up. 
It doesn't mean to burn as if to consume. Instead, it is a word which normally is used to express an action, such as the burning of a sacrifice which is offered to the Lord, where it ascends up. It could be thus paraphrased this way, to cause the lamp to ascend to the Lord continually. Verse 21, in the tabernacle of meeting, outside the veil which is before the testimony. These words are given after mentioning the obtaining of the oil that is for the lamp which is in the tabernacle of meeting. In other words, the Lord is being specific that this is the lamp that he is referring to. Because of the abrupt change in the subject, this is being made clear to Moses right now. It is the lamp which was already described and which is in the tabernacle, outside the veil, and before the testimony. As John Lang says, in speaking now exclusively of the features of the ritual worship, it is to be observed that we must distinguish the general worship of the house of God from the specific Levitical worship, the sacrificial ritual described in Leviticus. So there's something special that's being described here is what John Lang is saying. Further, the term ohel moed, or tent of meeting, is used for the very first time in Scripture. After this, it's going to be a very common term. The King James Version and the New King James Version get a demerit in their translation for saying tabernacle of meeting. The word ohel means tent. Verse 21 continues, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening until morning. The reason for the sudden jump to the oil for the lamp is now seen in these words right here. They are a preemptory look into what will next be detailed by the Lord to Moses. Although it hasn't been yet stated, Aaron and his sons are the ones to be selected for the priesthood. Beginning in the next chapter, the garments and ornaments for that priesthood will be detailed. And because of this, the special duty which highlights their priesthood and which illuminates the holy place is mentioned first in preparation for that commission. This selection will be noted with the first words of chapter 28, which say this. Now take Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel that he may minister to me as priest, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Each step is methodically placed and structured to show intent, and each passage demonstrates immense wisdom. Verse 21 continues, before the Lord. This is now the first time that the name Jehovah or the Lord, has been mentioned since verse 25.1. The burning of the lamp is of particular interest to the Lord. Again, John Lang provides excellent insight into why the oil, the lamp, and the Lord have all been brought into the narrative at this time, which is just before the naming of the selection of Aaron and his sons. He says the first condition of life in the house of the Lord, as well as elsewhere, is light. And the prerequisite of that is oil. Light is the spirit in action symbolized by the oil, which is a symbol of the spiritual life itself. The first business of the priest was to prepare and produce light, even in the Old Testament. How is it in this respect with the sacrificial priesthood of the present time? He's asking about current ministers. The text says that this is to be a perpetual statute. So ministers of the Lord are to be light to the Lord perpetually. The first command that was given after the creation of the universe is found in Genesis 1, verse 3. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now the first command for the care of the most holy things, even prior to the naming of the high priest, was to have there be light. About 1,500 years later, we will see what this light pictures as it flows from the pen of John concerning Jesus Christ. In him was life and the life was the light of men. 
and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then on the last page of the Bible, the very last page of the Bible, we will see that the same light, which this pictures, will shine forevermore. Here's what it says in Revelation 22, verse 5. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. As I said, there is design, there is intent, and there is wisdom seen in this seemingly misplaced passage of Scripture. Verse 21 finishes with these words. It shall be a statute forever to their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. The lighting and maintenance of the lamp was to be olam, or forever to their generations. The word olam indicates that which is concealed. It is an indeterminate amount of time which simply extends on without knowing when it will end. Hence the term forever is used. In this case, forever is to be taken in the sense of the duration of the covenant which comprises the words that we're looking at. As the covenant is annulled through the work of Christ, then it is no longer a requirement. But for as long as the generations of the law were to remain, the statute was in force for the children of Israel. Christ is the true lamp. The Bible is the record of who he is, and the Holy Spirit is the one who illuminates scripture, which points us to him. He is the light of the world, and he is the fulfillment of all that these shadows and types only picture. Every single detail displays to us hints of him, of his coming, his work, and his glory. It is all there for those who are willing to just look. He is there. If you have never reached out and received Jesus Christ, please don't wait another day. All the head knowledge in the world and all of the good deeds that you could ever do will never get you one step closer to God. Only Christ can do that, so reach out to him today. Let me very quickly tell you, in case you've never made that commitment, that the Bible says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. It's something that we're born to do. Not a parent here had to teach their children to do wrong. Those kids know how to do wrong. We have to teach them to do right. And all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. But the gift of God, the Bible says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the one that can take away our sin debt because he fulfilled these types and pictures. He lived under the law. He fulfilled the law on our behalf and then he gave his life up as an exchange for our sins. And by trusting in what he has done, we move positionally to him from our first father, Adam. Adam is a picture of being life under the devil, under the power of Satan. And we move from that into Christ. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the Bible makes it very simple. It goes on to say, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is what he expects of us, is to simply say, I understand that I'm a sinner. Jesus Christ is alive. He prevailed over death. He paid my sin debt, and I want that. And if you do that, if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And then live for Christ after that. Live for him all your days. But this is what God would ask of you, to be reconciled to him through the one door, the one door, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Trust Jesus and Jesus alone. I have a closing verse for you today from Psalm 100. It's verses 4 and 5. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. Next week, we have Exodus 28, 1 through 14. Intricate stuff will be showed. It's entitled Garments for the Priesthood, the Ephod. That'll be our 76 Exodus sermon. And I'll tell you as I do each week, week after week, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. 
He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he'll do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Now, I have a poem for you. The guests here probably don't know this, but every, every passage of scripture since Genesis, I've made a poem out of the verses that we analyze. And so uh, we're getting pretty close to another full poem of the book of Gen uh, Exodus. We've got Genesis done. We've got the book of Ruth done. And we're about halfway through Exodus here. So this is called The Court and the Lamp. You shall also make the court of the tabernacle. For the south side there shall hangings for the court be, made of fine woven linen, 100 cubits long for one side, as instructed by me. And it's 20 pillars, and there are 20 sockets. Bronze shall be the hooks of the pillars, and their bands shall be silver, you see. Likewise, along the length of the north side, there shall be, just as I instruct you, hangings 100 cubits long with its 20 pillars and their 20 sockets of bronze too. And the hooks of the pillars and their bands of silver also, these accompany them as you now know. And along the width of the court on the west side shall hangings of 50 cubits be with their 10 pillars and their 10 sockets. Heed these instructions carefully. The width of the court, as you can see, on the east side shall 50 cubits be. The hangings on one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits, as I now instruct you, with their three pillars and their three sockets. This is what you are to do. And on the other side shall be hangings of 15 cubits also, with their three pillars and their three sockets. Follow each step carefully as you go. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long, woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen made by a weaver. It shall have four pillars and four sockets, just as I have said. All the pillars around the court shall have bands of silver, such shall it be. Their hooks shall be silver, and their sockets of bronze, thus you shall do certainly. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, the width 50 throughout this its size, and the height 5 cubits made of fine woven linen, and its sockets of bronze, as to you I apprise. All the utensils of the tabernacle for all its service, everything as I say, all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze, as I now relay. And you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually. Yes, to burn throughout all the night. In the tabernacle of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony, hear my word. Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statue forever. This I now to you tell to their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. Thank you, Lord, for the wonderful detail we see. Every word is precious for us to ponder, and all of it points to Jesus ever so marvelously. Thank you for sharing with us such splendid wonder. Hear our thanks as we praise you for all of our days. Forever and ever we shall sing to you with joyous praise. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these types and pictures which give us absolute certainty that we have our eggs in the right basket. We're following the correct God, we're following the correct Lord. We're following the true Savior and the, the right Redeemer. We thank you for Jesus. And we thank you that we're even certain of you in your own nature as the Godhead, that we're not stuck under a monad God that can't get out of his own way and can never reveal himself to his people. Instead, we're under the divine grace of a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who reveals himself endlessly and ceaselessly for all eternity for us to enjoy and to revel in and to see the ma ma marvelous majesty of what you have done. And we thank you for the forgiveness of sins through Christ our Lord. We thank you for the opportunity to pray for the sick and the distressed. And we'd like to add in Cindy here who has heard her eye again. 
to all the people that we petitioned you for already today. We would ask that you would continue to uh, heal her and help her to uh, not be doing any handsprings that she shouldn't be doing until she's better. Lord, we sure do love you and you sure are gracious to us. What a great God you are. And we praise you, we exalt you, and we honor you. In Jesus' beautiful name, amen. Okay, we get the instructions for the uh, Lord's Supper directly from the Bible. A couple new people here, so I'll explain something that maybe they haven't heard. The, uh, we take uh, what's known as matzah, it's unleavened bread, and uh, it doesn't have any yeast in it. These pictures sin, puffing up, pride, etc. There's no yeast in it, and it's a picture of the sinless Son of God. And then if you look at it, especially on this side, it looks like it's been kind of burned in stripes, and that would picture the stripes of Christ back as he was beaten for us. And then if you look through it, you can actually see holes in it where it was pierced. And so Christ was pierced for our transgressions and our iniquity. So it's all a picture of Christ. And the same with the, uh, the grape juice or the wine that is taken. It's a picture of his blood. And so this is what we come to do is to honor the Lord and to remember what he did for us. As Paul explains very clearly in the book of 1 Corinthians with these words. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And he would have given thanks over it with these words. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it and he said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hang on one sec. I'm going to go back and take care of her back here. Marlena, I'll be right back. I'm going to get you too. 
body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Heavenly Father, say a special prayer of thanks for uh, the doctor and Mabel who have been here throughout the winter, and uh, this is their last week here, and we would ask that you would just bless their socks up in the summer to come. Take good care of them and return them safely into our trust and our care, unless you come first for us, and we'll be happy if that happens. We'll be looking forward to the day when the trumpet blows. But should it delay, we'll just hope that uh, we'll all meet here again in uh, your wonderful presence and uh, be able to praise you. And uh, we do pray for those that are afflicted, and we send a prayer of thanks for Gail, who we got good news is out of a coma this morning. We thank you for that. Lord, you are so good to us, and we do not deserve it. And I'd like to give just one more prayer here for Tom, Allie, and Morgan. Although they uh, had known this was coming, Janice is gone, and certainly their hearts are going to be confused and in a bit of distress over the next few weeks and months, but we would pray that you would comfort them through that and just lead them to an appreciation that you were sovereign over all things, including the times of our lives. We love you, we praise you, we thank you, and we exalt you for how great you are to us, and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.